Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be joining author Mark O'Neill to talk with him about his latest book about China's princess, the Russian daughter-in-law of Chiang Kai-shek. But first, Hong Kong's pubs and bars have been shut down for two weeks to help prevent the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Among those pubs is the Australian-style institution Ned Kelly's Last Stand, which has shut down for the first time in its 47-year history. The pub has never moved from Ashley Road in Chimsa Choi and was founded and continues to be owned by Tom Parker. Ned Kelly's is famous for its nightly live band run by band leader Colin Aitchison. So I gave him a quick call to see what he felt about this iconic pub shutting its doors for the first time in nearly half a century. had the flu and the financial crisis, people were still coming in from overseas. I think, I think people flying into Hong Kong, using it to go through to China and to do business, that's been like the water tap for Ned Kelly's because most of our customers are either tourists, trade fair people, cruise ship people, of course a number of locals, of course, but we do also rely mainly on the overseas customers. So, I mean, you know, when... Uh Ned Kelly's was first set up in 1972. That would have been during the Vietnam War. That's right. We had a lot, of, of course, in those days, as Tom Parker has uh, told me the stories about the, uh, the, the USGIs coming in, because basically Hong Kong was basically a rest and recreation place for the US forces. So there was a, a sort of quite a big uh, complement of US Navy here, and basically US servicemen taking the rest in Hong Kong before they went off to... Uh, Vietnam, wherever they were going. So how do you, per- I mean, with, with running the band, how do you personally feel about the fact that it is having to shut down for two weeks? Like I say, we've been through the bird flu, we've been through the financial thing. We went actually through SARS and didn't close, you know. And that was quite a terrible time, SARS. But uh, this really, since I think, which has not just affected us, a lot of bars and restaurants, is that Basically, there is nobody coming in now. It's like a lockdown. It's not a full lockdown. And there's a lot of other countries worse than this one. But it is a lockdown in a way. So not the close of the bars and the pubs, but anyway, business was dying anyway because we don't have anybody coming in. Just a splattering of locals as such, you know. So how do I feel? It's sad. But if it is only for two weeks and we can get on, like before, like Joe and Sars, we had to start from scratch again and build it up again. So it's just a matter... If by now time, hoping that we get over this, not too many more deaths and all this sort of thing and people getting sick, hopefully we'll get over it and then we can start and build from scratch again. Ned Kelly's, I mean, the, the perhaps one thing that will help protect Ned Kelly's is the fact that um, it's actually owned, not rented. That's right, yes. I mean, Tom Parker was the man who kicked it off, and he's had it since 1972. 
And um, and kept it going. Now, I think even Jones saw it. If it wasn't for Tom Parker uh, being there and owning it, we would have probably been finished then, you know? Just keep your armature in for when you're back. Yeah, keep the armature in. That's the problem, yeah, keep that going, you know? The first thing I think about Kelly's is it's always been that same location. Nothing much has changed, really, you know? The only thing that changed inside, basically, was where the stage was. Yeah. As you know, you come through the doors, the stage used to be on the left when Dennis James played there. And then I went to the middle when Ken Bennett went there, and now I'm there. And so, you know, but that's about the only thing that's changed, you know. Still got that old part of Hong Kong about it, you know. be able to say 47 years just minus these couple of weeks hopefully i'm really i really hope so i just hope that everybody stays safe and keeps healthy and stays well and this that this terrible virus will be over in the not too distant future you know for everybody you know and while they can't go to neds what do you advise them to listen to uh, they can go onto youtube there's plenty of clips of um there's i've got a channel we have a channel actually on a YouTube called CC Jasmine, and there's many, there's about 500 clips there of various guests with the band at Ned Kelly's on CC Jasmine. So yeah, you can go on YouTube and still catch various guests we've had over the years at Ned Kelly's. So that's CC Jasmine, China Coast Jasmine, of, uh, so Colin Aitchison and the China Coast Jasmine. Well, all the best, Colin. Thanks very much for the chat. Um, hope you're back playing very soon. Well, I hope so. I hope we can have a, a little tipple to it. Really, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, minus the masks, you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, anyway, stay safe, and I'll catch up with you, Anne-Marie. Thank you. <laughs> Colin Aitchison there. Hopefully you can hear Colin Aitchison and the China Coast Jasmine live at Ned Kelly's Last Stand very soon again. Meanwhile, you can have a listen to their YouTube channel. Next on the programme, I talk with Mark O'Neill, China analyst and author. Mark's latest book looks at the extraordinary life of Fina Ipatevna Vakreva. A Russian factory worker, Fina would meet and marry the son of Chiang Kai-shek when he was studying in the Soviet Union. She would return with their son to meet China's leader, Chiang Kai-shek, and his second wife, Sung Mei Ling. Fina would remain in mainland China and then Taiwan for the rest of her life. Mark O'Neill has written a book about her life. This was a Russian wife who was never spoken of in the 1980s under martial law in Taiwan when her husband and Chiang Kai-shek's son, Chiang Ching-kuo, was president. All three of their sons they would lose to cancer. Mark O'Neill's book is called China's Russian Princess, The Silent Wife of Chiang Ching-kuo. She had a really extraordinary life. She was born in Belarus in 1916 and she spent the first 21 years of her life in Russia and then the rest of her life was spent with her husband so that's in mainland China and then in Taiwan. She never returned to Russia after 1937 when she arrived in China with her husband 
And this is not the life that she was expecting. She was expecting to spend her life with her husband in the Soviet Union. So she arrives in China. She does not speak Chinese. She's from an ordinary family. And suddenly she meets uh, Song Meiling, her mother-in-law, who is the most poised Chinese woman in the world, speaks perfect English, is wealthy, extremely well-dressed, very much at ease with everyone. And suddenly this Russian factory worker <laughs> is meeting her mother-in-law. So her whole life is, is adjusting. It's, she had to change herself completely to adjust to this new life that she, that she has. So where did she come from and how did, the, how did she meet the son of Chiang Kai-shek? Well, she was born in Osha, which is East Belarus, in 1916, and that's probably the worst place in the world to be born at that time because we're in the middle of World War One. The German army has conquered most of Western Russia, and then the communists cede Belarus to the Germans, so the city is under German control. And then after the German surrender in 1918, it becomes a place uh, of battle between the new Polish Republic and the communist Red Army. So in this terror, she grew up, she lost both her parents, and in 1921, her elder sister decided that they cannot live there anymore and they escape far to the east, 2,300 kilometers to Ekaterinburg, which is on the border between Europe and Asia. So it's right in the middle of Russia. And there it's comparatively peaceful. So that's where she grows up with her elder sister, no parents, very poor, material conditions are very, very difficult. They live in a dormitory most of the time. She makes a small living as a seamstress. And then she goes to a technical college in this big heavy machinery plant. And she works in this technical college. And it's there that she meets Jiang Xingguo. So he has an even more extraordinary odyssey to end up in this plant. So he's the supervisor of her in the plant. So that's how the romance flourishes in, in the factory. So Chiang Xingguo is the son of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Xingguo is in Russia or the Soviet Union at that point and uh, his father is leading China so can you tell me how come the son was in the Soviet Union? The young man Zhang Jiguo he grew up with his mother in this small town in East China then he went to school in Shanghai then he went to school in Beijing and then he asked his father if he could go to what was called the Sun Yat-sen University which is in Moscow and this university was created by the new Soviet Communist Party to train foreigners in communism. So most of the students were from the Chinese Communist Party, but there were a small number of students from the Guomindang, which is what Chiang Kai-shek was leading. And Chiang Kai-shek made a tour of the Soviet Union in 1923, and he was very impressed by a lot of things he saw. So he decided to send his son to this university even though he was only 15. So Zhang Jingguo is 15, he takes the Trans-Siberian Railway, he arrives in Moscow, and he enrolls in the Sun Yat-sen University. And he is a model student. He learns Russian very quickly, he adapts very quickly to Russian life, he, he drinks heavily, he, he can dance, he can sing, he becomes very popular, he's a very good student. He's then sent to a military academy in Leningrad. Again, he excels, he does very well, he's one of the top students. He writes a thesis on guerrilla warfare. He's an alternate member, 
candidate for the Soviet Communist Party. So everything's going well for him. But then things in China change and Stalin regards him as a pawn because he's the son of the leader of China. So for Stalin, it's very useful to have the son of Chiang Kai-shek in your hand. So Chiang Hinkuo repeatedly asks Stalin if he can go back to China when he's finished his studies and Stalin refuses because he prefers to have him in the Soviet Union in order to give him leverage over his father. So he works in factory, he works in a, a communal farm outside Moscow. He's then sent to a labor camp very close to China. And these are extraordinary experiences for a young Chinese man. But is he, in effect, being kept as a prisoner? Yes, he's being kept as a prisoner. So he ends up in this heavy machinery plant in Yekaterinburg, and it's a result of his um, good study, he's engineer, uh, he behaves well, He's well regarded by the local party people. But what I also find fascinating is you've got a father who heads up the Kuomintang, is the leader of China, and you've got a son who is a candidate or, as I say, an alternate member of the Soviet Communist Party. So was communism in the Soviet Union regarded by Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang as different from what would later be the communists coming about in China? Well, the, the Soviet Communist Party, Stalin, they supported both sides in China. They supported both the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. So Chiang Kai-shek was quite well disposed to Stalin. He provided military officers, he provided weapons to the Kuomintang. So the animosity with the Communist Party was not so severe as it later became. But of course you're right, this question became a very severe question when Chiang Jingguo returns to China and he has to prove to his father and he has to prove to other people that he's not a communist and he wasn't in the Communist Party. So as you say, the son is being moved around by Stalin, um, a labour camp factory, and um, he becomes a supervisor in a factory at Ekaterinburg. And that's where he meets, or he's the supervisor of his later wife, Faina Vakreva. So um, what sort of factory was it? It was a very big, it was a very important factory because after the Communist Party took power in the, in the Soviet Union, they realized how far behind they were Western Europe. So they had very rapid forced industrialization. So this city became a key industrial city and they built several very important uh, plants so this was a heavy machinery plant, and it was a good place for both of them to be working because it was a time of shortages and, and, and economic difficulty. But if you worked there, you would be well-fed, you would have an apartment to live in. It was a good place to work. So Fina and CCK uh, got to know each other, the romance blossomed, and uh, they married. And then they had a, uh, a son. Their first son was born there. But then the Great Purge began in 1936 in, in Soviet Union. And uh, Chiang Jinkuo was thrown out of work. He spent all his time at home. They relied on the salary of his wife alone. And he was very afraid because the door could be broken open at any time. The KGB could enter and could take you away and you may never be seen again. In December 1936, there was the Xi'an incident when Chiang Kai-shek was kidnapped by one of his own generals 
and said, you've got to unite with the communist army and fight the Japanese. And that's the condition of release. So Chiang Kai-shek was forced to agree to this. So Jiang Jingguo writes a letter to Stalin saying, look, Mr. Stalin, this is your key chance. Now we have the Chinese, the two Chinese armies uniting against Japan, and that will save you from being attacked by Japan. I should go back and, and, and help my father and promote this new unification. So that changed Stalin's point of view. So he, he agreed to allow them to return to China. So in the spring of 1937, uh, Jiang Jingguo, his wife, and the young son were able to go back to China. And this was a huge shock <laughs> to find her because I th she was expecting to spend her life in the Soviet Union with her husband. So suddenly she finds herself in Hangzhou, and she's being introduced to uh, Su Meiling, her, I can't say mother-in-law, her father-in-law's second wife, and then to Chiang Kai-shek himself. And she's not well-dressed. She's just wearing the, the, the outfit she had in the factory. Uh, she spoke, speaks only Russian at this time. She doesn't speak Chinese. And I think we can't imagine what she was feeling to suddenly move from the small apartment in Katarinburg, just living from hand to mouth and suddenly joining the first family in China with drivers and servants and gardeners and the whole apparatus of, of, of wealth. So the first thing that happens when they go to China is Chiang Kai-shek is very suspicious of his son. Is he a communist? Is he in fact working for Stalin? So instead of joining the government or, or having a normal job, he's sent to stay with his birth mother, this is Chiang Kai-shek's first wife, in this small town in Zhejiang province, and he has to do a kind of re-education. So he has to write his memoirs of his life in Soviet Union, but he can't write it in Chinese because he's forgotten the characters. So he writes it in Russian and then a teacher translates them. He also has to relearn the characters, the Chinese characters that he's forgotten. And at the same time, Faina has to start learning to be a Chinese wife. So she has to learn Chinese also. And she has to learn how to behave as a Chinese wife. And she gets on very well with her mother-in-law. So they're in this very small town in Zhejiang province. And she rides bicycle. She rides a horse. She goes swimming in the local river. And all the, the local women just, they just can't believe what they're seeing. I mean, they've never seen a, a European woman before. <laughs> and suddenly, it's the wife of the president's son riding a horse, riding a bicycle, going shopping, and swimming. So they talk about nothing else, and they criticize her. They say, you shouldn't be doing this, because a, you know, a, a wealthy Chinese wife would not be doing such a thing. So they spend eight months there. So Zhang Jingguo finishes his account of life in the Soviet Union and gives it to his father, and his father reads it and is happy that his son is not a communist and he's not an agent of Stalin, so he allows him to start a working life. So this begins in a small city in the south of Jiangxi province. Now remember, the Japanese have invaded China now, so they control large parts of China. So father chooses for him a small, remote area in southern Jiangxi, which is so backward, it's of no interest to the Japanese. So the two of them, move there, it's called Gannan, 
and he's the administrator of this area, about two million people. So this is his first job since coming back. And Feiner is very much part of this. She's very much the wife of the politician, and she's very much involved in his life at that time. Now, it's interesting that you should have chosen not him, but her, to, to write your, uh, your book. When did you... Tell me about when you first discovered Feiner. Well, when I lived in Taiwan in the 80s, Chiang Jingguo was the president, so he was on television every day, he was in the newspapers, he was everywhere. But we never saw his wife. Most people believed he had a wife, but we weren't sure what she looked like. And Was she foreign? Maybe she's foreign. And remember, we're in martial law now, so everything is very tightly controlled, the media is very tightly controlled, nothing will appear which the government doesn't want. So there were no references to his wife in the, in the newspaper. Uh, as I say, she never appeared in public, so we had no idea about her. So going back now to the, the early years of Fina in, in China, um, so this is pre them then having to, to move to Taiwan. So she's um, in a quiet area, so she's had that time with her mother-in-law, um, who she got on very well with, so that's the birth mother of uh, Chang Qingkuo, and that's Chiang Kai-shek's first wife. Um, He's, he's sort of back in with his dad in terms of not being a communist. But um, he then is in a, a rural area where he administers over two million. She is then very much the politician's wife during this era. Yes, uh, this was a very happy time for her because she was very much uh, with her husband, involved with him in his work, saw a lot of him. She was a very outgoing person, active. You know, she, she enjoyed it very much. However... He had a girlfriend, one of his secretaries, and the secretary had twins. And this is the great shadow over this period. And what happens is that about a half a year after the birth of the twins, the mother of the twins dies in very mysterious circumstances. And most people believe she was poisoned by somebody. But we're not sure, even now, we're not completely sure what happened. But the, the twins survive, they're brought up by the other members of her family, and they also come to Taiwan, and the two sons go on to have very outstanding careers. One becomes a very a famous law professor, one joins the government and becomes the foreign minister, and a senior figure in the Kuomintang. So this is a shadow of a finer's life throughout these twins. But it seems to me that Jiang Jingguo greatly regretted what he had done. Let's get back to Fina. So the years in this small town in Jiangsu were very happy. But then the Japanese attack it and they have to leave. And from then on, her husband is very close to the father. So for the next years in the mainland, Fina is mostly on her own with her children while her husband is with the father. So in 1949, which is the year the communists take over the mainland, in April she leaves the mainland with her children in a plane and they fly to Taiwan, but her f husband stays in the mainland with his father. He stays in the mainland with his father. So and with Chiang Kai-shek. Kai-shek. And they don't want to leave. Militarily there is no hope. They ought to leave. But Chiang Kai-shek feels it's a matter of honor. He can't leave whilst his soldiers are still fighting. So finally they're in Sichuan in December 1949 and the communist armies have, have taken all the surrounding areas. So it's the last chance. 
So they get on a plane, and the areas they're flying over are controlled by the new communist government. So there's no radar, there's no radio connection. So the pilot has to fly according to his instinct and his experience. Uh, if he lands anywhere, the plane will be immediately seized and these two men will be captured. But the pilot is an extraordinary pilot and he manages to fly to Taiwan. So for Faina, these eight months, that's April to December, is nightmare. Because she's in Taiwan with her children. Her husband is somewhere in China. She cannot contact him easily because his whereabouts is a top military secret. You know, that the terrified the communists will find out, will listen to the radio, find out where he is and capture him. So she doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive or not. So these eight months are very, very difficult. I'm talking with journalist and China analyst Mark O'Neill, the author of China's Russian Princess, the silent wife of Jiang Jingkuo. It is very hard for us to say how much of his achievements were due to her. I mean, we know well what Jiang Jingkuo did in his life and his contributions to Taiwan, to the economy, democracy and so forth. But of course, a portion of this is due to his wife because he, he went through many periods of difficulties. His health was very poor. He had many enemies in the party. The United States broke relations with Taiwan, recognized the PRC. I mean, he went through great difficulties in his life. So who, who supported him at that time? Who gave him the confidence to carry on, to, to look forward to the future? And the Taiwan we see today is, is the creation of Jiang Jingguo, which is it's a very positive story. So I think Feiner has a lot of credit to take for this, but it's very hard for us to, to, to say exactly what, because uh, we don't have letters she wrote or, or her diary. You know, we don't know her private thoughts or all these questions. Why do you think he hit her in the 1980s? Well, immediately after 1949, the world was divided between the, the communist world and the anti-communist world. And in, in, in Taiwan, there was a fever against communism, against communism in China and then communism in the Soviet Union. I remember this, one of the slogans we had to repeat was Fan Gong Kang E, oppose the communists in China and oppose the Soviet Union. So. I think Jiang Qingguo didn't want his wife to appear because people would say, how is it you have a Russian wife? How is it you have a, a Soviet wife? Is she a member of the Soviet Communist Party? Are you a member of the Soviet Communist Party? All this would give ammunition to his enemies. So he preferred to have her at home, mother of his children, housemaker, and she was happy to, to do this role because she was not at all familiar with China. And remember, Ta Taiwan is different to China. It's another culture, it's another history. Most people then didn't speak Mandarin, they spoke Taiwanese. So she was much happier to be at home and concentrate on her friends, her family, housemaker. So she was very happy with this role. There was no, there was no contradiction. Was it quite challenging to research the life of Fina? Not so difficult. I mean, Taiwan is a very open society. There's quite a lot of material that's pub published. We were able to do quite a few interviews. So what kind of interviews did you get? Well, the best one was with the wife of the third son. Zhang Jingguo and Fina had three sons, and tragically all of them died in the 1990s of cancer while 
Fina was alive. So this wife was called Elizabeth. She remained in Taiwan. She ran a nursery. So she gave us an interview, and she gave us more than two hours. And of course, she knew Fina intimately, and she explained a lot of things which were not clear until that point. I mean, for example, how could any woman endure the loss of her husband and then the loss of her three sons while she's alive? Her daughter-in-law explained that she was a very uh, devoted uh, Christian, and this gave her a way to understand what had happened. And the way she put it was, she was sad about the loss of her husband and her sons, but she was not angry, because God has set the time for when we come and when we depart, and this cannot be changed. My thanks to Mark O'Neill talking there on his latest book, China's Russian Princess: The Silent Wife of Jiang Jingkuo. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.